our society sees their place in this world, we could sum it up in four simple words. That is not fair. We live in a reality where we believe that nothing is ever fair. If there has ever been a phrase that each and every one of us could relate to, that's it. Every parent in the room has had a moment, whether it was their child playing with some random child from down the street or playing with a sibling, where something took place and this child that you created and that you love, they uttered to you that whatever had taken place, at least in their eyes, was not fair. You're at work and someone gets the raise that you want, and at least in your eyes, it's, you are much more qualified And that's not fair. You're not allowed to start on a sports team, or even worse, your child is not allowed to start on a sports team. And in your eyes, your child or you are the better player. That's just not fair. Your sibling exists and gets celebrated, and at least in your eyes, you are overlooked. You, for whatever reason, don't get a birthday present on their birthday. That's not fair. You take your child to a birthday party. We have moved in this world to a point in time where we believe that every child who attends a birthday party should get a gift. How broken is that? It's not fair. It is broken and it will break you. Today's text is an unfair yet necessary text. And it is a text that each and every one of us need. And we're going to look at the whole of what today boils down to. It's this. That sin has distorted the world in this way. We are so convinced that we are right that we fail to be righteous. We are so convinced that we are right that we fail to be righteous. We fail to behave righteously, at least in our eyes. We've outsourced sin to them to the point that we treat it as if it is a benign thing in us yet is a thing that exists in others that has metastasized. We overlook that sin is present in each and every one of us. And that if we're living on this side of eternity that the war of spirit and sin is waging in us. We see they problems. We don't see us problems. So whenever they get what they want, that's not fair. What does this text show to us? Mark chapter 14, picking up in verse 53. They led Jesus away to the high priest. And all the chief priests, the elders and the scribes, they assembled Peter followed him at a distance, right in the high priest's courtyard. He was sitting with the servants, warming himself by the fire. The chief priests and the whole Sanhedrin were looking for testimony against Jesus to put him to death, but they could not find any. For many were giving false testimony against him, and the testimonies, they just did not agree. Some stood up and gave false testimony against him, stating, We heard him say, I will destroy the temple made with human hands, and in three days I will build another one not made by hands. Verse 
Yet their testimony did not miss. And then the high priest stood up before them all and questioned Jesus. Don't you have an answer to what these men are testifying against you? But Jesus kept silent and he did not answer. And again the high priest questioned him, Are you the Messiah, the Son of the Blessed One? I am. And you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with clouds of heaven. Then the high priest tore his robes and said, why do we still need this? Why do we still need witnesses? You've heard this blasphemy. What is your decision? They all condemned him as deserving to death. Then some began to spit on him, to blindfold him, to beat him, saying, prophesy. The temple servants also took him and they slapped him. While Peter was in the courtyard below, one of the high priest's maidservants, she came. When she saw Peter warming himself, she looked at him and said, you also were with Jesus, the man from Nazareth, but he denied it. I, I don't know or understand what you're talking about. And then he went out to the entryway and a rooster crowed. When the maidservant saw him again, she began to tell those standing nearby, this man, he was with them. He was one of them. Peter again, he denied it. After a little while, those standing there said to Peter again, you certainly are one of those since you are a Galilean. Then he started to curse and swear. I don't know this man that you're talking about. Immediately a rooster crowed a second time. And Peter remembered when Jesus had spoken the word to him, before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. And he broke down and he wept. At the Pohome, we have birthdays and they kind of happen in chunks. Uh, Magnolia's birthday is in January Charlie's birthday is in January we get a tad bit of a break and then you get Shepherd's birthday which is actually today uh, and we uh, are in this place because this child is not just having a birthday he turns 15 years old today which means that I'm about to give up the driver's seat in that sweet sweet 2008 Honda Accord that I roll around in he's going to occasionally get to be sporting that around town both horses running inside the engine. He's going to get the driver's seat, though he's not qualified to drive. The idea of giving up a seat is very present in this text. Moving away from the seat that belongs to you and giving it to someone who is unqualified to sit in it. In this passage, we are seeing that the Sanhedrin are calling Jesus to trial and they are putting themselves in the place of the judge. They are going to judge Jesus. But unlike when any of us go to court for our various uh, speeding situations and scenarios, uh, Jesus is actually the judge. The great judge is going to give up his bench. So we find Jesus in this passage on trial, and that should not surprise us. 
Uh, One commentator points out, we can debate what the original sin is, whether it's pride or unbelief or something else, but what sin does is first and foremost to put on the bench, to put us on the bench and God in the dock to be judged. Again, sin has distorted the world in this way. We are so convinced that we are right that we miss what it means to be righteous. We fail to live righteous lives. And in this text, we see that the righteous judge is unrighteously judged. We also see this. The shepherd is slaughtered like a sheep. The king is stripped of all of his power. Our sin puts God under our judgment while we sit there on the bench and look at him and say that he should receive it. The Sanhedrin come to Jesus in this passage and there is something at work in them. They have been dealing with Jesus for years now, just a couple of years, and as they've dealt with Jesus, they have realized very quickly, he's not the Messiah that we want. Their understanding of messianic leadership was really took place uh, when a man named Judas Maccabeus, the, the hammer, professional wrestling name, get that sewn on his back of his jacket. He, he came in and he overthrew the, the, the Greeks who had taken over Jerusalem. He was the best picture. He was the prototype for these men of what a Messiah was. A warrior king who would step in and would undo all that was wrong and broken in the system. They don't get that with Jesus. Jesus keeps talking about a kingdom that is not of this world. He keeps speaking to the idea that this kingdom that he has put into play is completely unique, absolutely different. It is full of light and wonder and grace and mercy and truth. That's the kingdom of Jesus and they don't want that because that means that no one has to pay. There is no retribution. What about all the ways that we have been wronged? And there's not a place where the... the, Jewish leadership is sitting on a throne. The strange thing about the Sanhedrin was, and their desire to be seated, to to have Jewish people seated on the throne, and Israel as the top, if they are already the leaders of Israel, that means that they are on the top of the top. Whenever we begin to talk about the notion of uh, utopian societies, they don't really exist on this side of eternity. We have structures where someone is ruling and someone is reigning and someone is in power. And for these Sanhedrin who were ruling and reigning under the constraints of Rome, if Rome was removed, that just simply means that they rule and then they reign. But this kingdom that Jesus is talking about is so unique and so different that it looks altogether different from theirs because theirs was simply the same type of kingdom. The only problem was they're the ones who are in charge. And here in this passage, you see Jesus in a place where he is going to be judged, though he's the judge, where he is going to be stripped of his power, even though he is king, where he is going to be slaughtered like a sheep, even though he is the good shepherd. And when you look to the text, you see that Jesus, through the writer Mark, is showing us this drastic counterpoint to the actual kingdom of God that we have in Jesus. The kingdom that Jesus offers us, the kingdom to which we as believing people belong, is full of light and life and mercy and hope and truth. And when we align with kingdoms of this world, we are aligning here and we see how dark this actually is. 
They dragged Jesus in at night to judge him. Because when they looked at Jesus, they thought, if he won't give us what we want, we'll forsake him. That's what they did. That didn't work. And if he is who these people want to be their leader, we'll just kill him. We'll just kill him. They took him to meet with him at night. This violates every rule that the Sanhedrin had in place. This thing is thrown together in rage. Do you know how rage affects us when we make decisions? Not only is it an outrageous decision, it is an outrageous decision made in a collective group. As you read through Mark's account of it, you can hear the tone of their frustration with Jesus. I kept hearing this referred to as a, as a kangaroo court and coming across the phrase kangaroo court. I had no idea kangaroos had courts. And then I read, so imagine this, your place of business, whatever that is, we'll call it a chemical plant, has policies and infrastructure. But you don't agree with those policies and infrastructure. Because you know better. I mean, I understand they're in charge, but we've got spreadsheets. We've got a Google Doc, a Google Sheet. You know better. And though there is an infrastructure in place to which you are, that you are supposed to follow, you've been whispering and murmuring and mumbling around your little group of friends... And you decide that you're going to usurp the power and the authority of your leadership. All hypothetical. So you call in a few people. You call in people that you like, that you agree with, that are on your side. You call in some people that you don't like. You call in people from the other side. Whatever the other side is, you guys need to work through that in your own plants. And all of you together decide what you're going to do and why you're going to do it. And you guys make a decision that you don't have the right to make and you make decisions without any jurisdiction whatsoever. That's what they have here. This trial of Jesus is supposed to happen during the day. It happens at night. The conversations they're going to have with Jesus, they keep calling people to testify and no one has a testimony. None of it lines up. They can't agree about anything. He tried at night during a festival. A verdict is announced immediately without waiting for a second or a third hearing on the next day, even though that's supposed to take place. The witnesses are encouraged to testify falsely, and their testimony is contradictory. There, uh, there's a charge of blasphemy. It's made for claiming that he is the Messiah, not for uttering the divine name. The Sanhedrin put themselves in the seats of the judge. And when we put ourselves in the seats of the judge, we put ourselves in the place of God. Do you really want to be there? Because if we are putting ourselves in the place of God, we are saying that God is not. When we remove God from his throne, we are saying that we ourselves are God. We are functioning in that capacity. 
They led him away to the high priest and all the chief priests, the elders, the scribes. They assembled. Peter followed him at a distance. I love that about Peter because he, to the best of his ability, is fulfilling his promise because what he said to Jesus in our last gathering, even if the rest of them fall away, I'm with you. So as they're dragging Jesus in, he's following him. They've celebrated Passover and we're, we're the per, and, and the perfect lamb is slain in our place. That's actually what they were foreshadowing in that celebration. It reminds us of what we, t- what we see in the book of Zechariah, that they will strike the shepherd and the sheep will scatter. We know that. It's in the book of Zechariah. When you strike the shepherd, the sheep will scatter. And the disciples here, in the most literal sense, have scattered away from Jesus. How much are we like that? Oh, and it makes sense. This man is a convicted felon, even if the conviction is is poor. Rational people do not follow convicts. Crazy people follow dead convicts. The chief priests and the whole Sanhedrin are looking for a testimony against Jesus to put him to death. They couldn't find any. There was nothing for them to say, nothing for them to do. The testimonies keep being mismatched, not aligning, not agreeing with one another. The high priest stood up before them and said to Jesus, Don't you have an answer to what these men are testifying against you? Verse 60. He was silent. He did not answer. Let's not miss the underlying foreshadowing of who Jesus actually is in the passage. Because we have just celebrated Passover where a lamb was slain, it takes the sin of the people upon it. You have Jesus, the good shepherd, who stands in the place of the sheep in front of the high priest and the Sanhedrin. Jesus is taking upon himself the place of the lamb led to slaughter. Again, after Jesus says nothing, he said, are you the Messiah, the son of the blessed one? You can read this a couple of ways. One is, do you really think you're all that special to God? Do you really think he cares about you that much? On top of this, it's a reference to the book of Daniel chapter 7. If he says he's the Messiah in Daniel chapter, in reference to this story, then, then we see that he is taking upon himself the place of God. That is what they will accuse him of. That is what they will convict him of. That is what they will condemn him of. If he says that he's the Messiah in the story, it also does another thing. It lets these men know who they are. Because in that prophecy in Daniel chapter 7, you have two things at play. You have the Messiah, and then you have those who were wolves, monsters, beasts, attempting to undo the power of the Messiah. And if Jesus says he's the Messiah in regard to this reference, it is letting them know, this is how I see you. The Sanhedrin are in this, particular, this unique, peculiar place because they are supposed to be shepherding God's people, yet they are actually monstrous beasts from Daniel's prophecy. How weird is it that when God doesn't deliver... How weird is it when God doesn't deliver things the way we want Him to? What does it make us feel 
Now, now I know the background of most of our folks in here, and we, we don't like to align ourselves with our feelings. The problem is, you have them. All of us do. How does it make you feel when God doesn't function the way that you think He should function? Are you the Messiah? I am. And you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with clouds of heaven. If that's who Jesus is, then every one of these men is an enemy of God. They have been insulted. This is problematic because when we see ourselves as God, that means that everything that anyone does to us is blasphemy. Christ lets them know very quickly that he will be vindicated. Immediately he will be vindicated because he is going to be at the Father's right hand. An ultimate vindication is this. He will return to judge the living and the dead. When we read through a passage like this, there is a tendency to blame those who are at work and miss that the problem of their sin is the problem of my sin and your sin. Their desire to attempt to function as God because they believe that they knew better than Jesus is not something that is limited or isolated to the Sanhedrin. My desire to function as God is just as problematic and that sin is what has put Christ on the cross and even made the cross necessary. Our sin is present in this text. Your sin and mine. And the belief that we could be a better God than God. They accuse Jesus immediately. He's a false prophet. He's threatened to destroy the temple. He's calling himself king. He is speaking ill of us. That is blasphemy. Which is technically not. But when you see yourself as God, then anything is blasphemy. The high priest tore his robe. That's the equivalent of a, of a judge banging his hammer. Why do we even need witnesses anymore? You've heard this blasphemy. What is, your what is your decision? They all condemned him as deserving of death. Then some began to spit on him. They blindfolded him and they beat him. Prophesy. The only way they could see prophecy, ironically, was Jesus telling the future when in actuality he was speaking to their right then. They slapped him. Peter's followed this far. Jesus in this passage is owned, he's the Messiah. Right there in front of the Sanhedrin who believe they are God and everybody. But Peter's in the place where he will act like he doesn't even know him. If you were to write a spiritual memoir or a biography of your faith expedition, what would you include? 
what would you leave out? Peter in this passage is in a unique place in comparison to these men because he sees Jesus in a similar way because he wants Jesus to accomplish what he wants him to accomplish. And his thought pattern is if he won't be who I want him to be, I'll just abandon him. If he won't do what I want him to do, I'll just let it go. We can't really know what's taking place in Peter's heart. All that we can know is what's taking place in their midst. And while Jesus, th these passages, they, they work side by side. This is simultaneously. While Jesus is being beaten by guards, Peter is sitting between them. The ear guy's probably not there. I'll be honest, if you chop my ear off, I would recognize you, but nobody recognizes Peter here. I would know the guy who chopped off my ear. While Peter's in the courtyard, one of the maidservants came to him. She saw Peter warming himself and she looked at him and said, you were with him, this man from Nazareth. Now we know if we've been around places like this that Nazareth is a big part of the story, but for them, it's, you're from over there. We know because of your accent. You don't sound like you're from around here. There's this urban legend that when a church that meets on Dixie Drive was looking for a pastor, <laughs> one of the elders' wives, this really just a legend, rumor, told her husband to listen to a sermon. He said, I can't listen to that every Sunday. Thank you so much, elder. Six years deep, baby. Uh, <laughs> dialects give things away. I don't know. I don't understand what you're talking about. He's probably trying to cover it up. He's trying to talk deep. Like when we tell my son Alder to talk like a big boy, and he says, I'll talk like a big boy. He went out of the entryway and a rooster crowed. When the maidservant saw him again, she began to tell those standing nearby, this is one of them. Again, he denied it. After a little while, those who were standing there said to Peter, you certainly are one of them. You're also a Galilean. What would have to take place in your life for you to abandon the person of Jesus? What thing do you want that you would not get that would cause you to say, I'm done with this. I'm out. I'm walking away. I'm, I'm finished. I, I love when we sing songs about him holding us fast because if he doesn't hold me fast, I'll let go quick. Peter begins to curse. There's about... 1,047,000 different interpretations of what it means when it says that he cursed. All that we know is it, it wasn't good. I don't know him. I don't like you. Leave me alone. He runs away and a rooster crows. If you're unfamiliar with the Gospel of Mark, Mark is... He is really Peter's biographer. He's writing down the story of Jesus according to Peter. He's writing the story of Jesus down. 
And I think that it's pretty interesting the way that Peter tells his story. Because of how ashamed he is by the sin that is present there. In Mark's gospel, it's the only one that functions like this. This is the last time that we see Peter. That's how he sees himself. As the one who turned his back on Jesus. Eventually, he'll get everything together. And he'll write in the book of 1 Peter on the other side of the resurrection where he realizes, knows, and sees that everything that Jesus had planned was better because Jesus is always better. That Jesus sees him in ways that he doesn't see himself. So I don't know how far you are from the Lord and if you're what you believe yourself to be way far gone. I'm just glad you're here today. But for believing people who have given up and are walking away and you're just going through the motions of showing up at this place on a Sunday morning. When God looks at you, He doesn't see you at your worst. He sees you at Christ's best. And because God sees you as as Christ's best, He can say to you that you are a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people who belong to God. God sees you in that way. Now, if you're here in this space and you've never placed your faith or trust in the person of Jesus Christ, those of us who are outside of relationship with Jesus are in the place where we are judging the judge, where we are saying to Jesus, I know better than you. And it's it's all of us. At some point, you have said to God Almighty, I know better than you. If you are not walking with Jesus right now, as a follower of Jesus, you are saying, I know better than you. You are putting yourself in the seat of the judge as you look at the great judge. You are a lamb who you deserve to be slain for your sin, and you are looking at the good shepherd, and you are saying to him, I don't care about your care. I don't love your love. Your guidance doesn't matter to me. We are looking at the king and we are saying, I will not give up power to you. We are putting ourselves in this place where we tell God we know better than you. And I pray that God would convict you of that because if you are not convicted by the power of his spirit as to what it means to know and walk with Jesus, then you will be separated from God on top of forever, forever on top of forever. But God is even inviting you right now by his providential grace, general grace that he expresses. God is inviting you, if you do not know Jesus, to know Jesus. To accept his death in your place. Because if he does not die in your place, then you will never stop dying. The hope of the gospel is this, that Jesus was judged... He took your sin upon himself. That the king gave up power so you could know his power. That the shepherd was slain so that you could follow him. So I'm going to invite us to bow our heads this morning. I'm in 
in a moment, I'm going to be in the back right-hand corner of the room, my right hand, your left-hand corner. If you are not a believer in Jesus, I want you to know this. Jesus cares for you. Jesus died so that you could know him. Jesus descended from heaven to this place to take sin upon himself so that unrighteous people could be made righteous. So that people who were unworthy of love could be loved. So that the image of God could be restored in you. Jesus wants to know you. So I'm in the back right-hand corner. Your left hand. For those of us who are believers in this space, I want you to take a couple of moments and just talk to the Lord. And I'll come back up in a moment to guide us through communion. But if you're a believer in this space, in these next couple of moments as Kenny sings, you're going to get the opportunity, you can take it at your leisure to get the cup and the bread, but don't look at that leisurely. Can we wrestle with what it means that God would give himself to us so that we could know him? That's what we do when we take communion. Your broken body for me. Your shed blood for me. The heart of our faith is that. That Jesus offers himself so that we could have a relationship with him. So when Kenny begins to play, you're going to have the urge to jump up and grab your communion cup. If you're in that place spiritually, then do it. But if, if you need to take a moment, do that. Before you casually take for granted all that God has done so that you could be restored. Jesus, we thank you for this morning, for the good work that you... Uh, God, for the good work that you have done in our bad place. Father, there are lost people in this room and I pray that today will be the day of salvation, whether it's here in this space during our worship gathering or it's at lunch with someone who brought them here. I pray that today will be the day of salvation, that you would save lost people. Father, I pray over our family of faith here at Grace. Lord, we, we all know, Lord, I have moments in my life where I think I know better than you. I pray that I would repent of that. And I would turn from me and I would turn to you. Convict us, Lord. Let us wrestle with our sin that you have already put to death. And see how we can walk in a way that looks like light.